Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. Commander George Wallace served in the U.S. Navy for 22 years as an officer on nuclear submarines. Under his command, the Houston was awarded the CIA Meritorious Unit Citation. He completed his active duty career as Assistant Chief of Staff, Submarine Group 5. George and Don Keith teamed up to write the best-selling novel Final Bearing and then Firing Point, which was adapted to become the major motion picture Hunter Killer. In addition to numerous technical papers and articles, he holds two patents from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. An avid woodworker, George has extensive home workshop that keeps him busy producing furniture, turnings, and custom pens. Commander Wallace and his wife Penny live in Alexandria, Virginia. George, welcome to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. I want to talk a little about about your background, your upbringing, and uh, we'll have a conversation. Let's let's start from there. Okay. As far as background, I was born in Ohio on a farm, uh, which, you know, some might call into question going into submarines from that. Uh, I graduated from Ohio State University with a degree in agricultural engineering, which also questions why I went into submarines or why Rick overtook me into submarines. Then uh, I went through the Admiral's uh, little charm school for nuclear submarines. And did my first tour of duty on the John Adams FSBN 620. It's one of the old 41 for Freedom. Then second tour was on the USS Woodrow Wilson 624 Blue, another one of the 41 for Freedom where I was the engineer officer. Uh, then XO is Bayfish, she's SSN 668. And then I commanded Houston, SSN 713. Uh, long time ago, which I think is about the same time you were in San Diego, as I recall. Yes, we probably <clears throat> crossed paths on that. Yeah, probably. What do you What do you think were some of the challenges uh, living on a farm? What do you think some of the things that you learned living on a farm? Well, probably more than anything, hard work and independence. If you didn't do it, it wasn't going to get done, and it had to be done. If you didn't uh, milk the cows, they would let you know. If you didn't feed them, they'd also let you know. Independence, there was, we didn't have any hired hands. It was dad, my little brother, and I doing the farming. So, and this, was it generations that had, had been on that, on that land? Generations in eastern Ohio, but dad bought that farm about a couple months after I was born. So, and my, little, my younger brother still farms that farm. He does. Oh, that's awesome. So that's, uh, what, 70 years ago. 70-some years, yeah. Talk to us about your experience with Admiral Rickover and share with us a little bit of history on, on Admiral Rickover. He was such a force in the submarine force. Certainly. Well, as you said, Admiral Rickover uh, was, 
was a force in the nuclear navy. Uh, some people probably say the force. He's certainly the father of nuclear navy. First off, when you interview with the admiral, you're either a you know, young midshipman or possibly an ensign, just just fresh. I mean, you were you're brand spanking new. Personally, I was a young midshipman. I went uh, drove down from Columbus, Ohio, to Washington D.C. Yeah, so you could say straight off the farm, and with the naval reactors, and you would expect a military operation of the size of naval reactors to be, you know, pretty fancy, you know, big offices, that kind of thing. Absolutely not. Very, very utilitarian. When I went into the admiral's office, it was a corner office, but an old, beat-up Navy gray desk, filing cabinets papers everywhere, and he had a ladder-back chair with about two inches sawn off each of the front legs, and that's where the candidates sit. And if you can imagine sitting on a chair that angles down forward, right. you, you're scooting off of it, which means you're bracing yourself back, so it's not a comfortable position. So you start the interview uncomfortable, if you weren't uncomfortable enough. Admiral Rickover was a little man. I mean, he was probably, if he was 5'7", I would be very surprised. And he probably didn't weigh more than about 110 pounds. And he just looked up over his glasses, looked at me, and said, you're a bippy bag. You're a bippy bag. No, yeah, tell us what, yeah, bippy bag. I had no idea what a baby bag was, so I said, no, sir. <laughs> but you knew it probably wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, I knew it wasn't good. But he just looks up and very gruffly says, that's a one-pound bag full of two pounds of bullshit. Get, you're a baby bag. Get out of here. Stood. The captain who was escorting me took me down to the file room, and I spent the next two hours looking at the M file drawer. And two hours later, he comes, and the captain came. And uh, escorting back up to the admiral's office, the admiral looks up and says, "You're still baby bag. Get out of here." So I spent another two hours looking at the M file drawer. This process went on three or four times, and finally, as I want to say, it was about between seven eight o'clock that evening. The captain comes in, takes me down to. A room and all of the other candidates that have been interviewing that day were sitting there. It was about probably 40, maybe 50 of us there. And a few minutes, he comes in, he calls out a couple of names, and those, those midshipmen leave. And a few more names, and a few more names. You know, about, oh, it must have been close to nine o'clock by now. The, he comes, I look around the room, there are about probably 15, 16 of us there. Well, I guess we're the losers. I'm going to go ride a destroyer here for three years. The captain comes in and says, welcome to the program. So we were the ones accepted. I don't know if we were the lucky ones or the unlucky ones, but we were the ones accepted to the program. And everybody that went through a Rickover interview had a story. I don't think any of them were just straight, you know, sit down and talk to the Apple for a couple of minutes. And he says, congratulations. Why do you yeah. think Rickover did that? Well, I think he was 
Well, first, first off, the interviews prior to meeting with the admiral were technical interviews. He had his technical experts question you so that he had some feeling that, that you could handle the physics and the math that's involved. So at that point, you know, you, he was pretty, probably pretty assured that you had the intellectual capacity, but he wanted to make sure that you could handle the stress. Yeah. And I think it's so relevant today, George, you know, people who are listening right now, as you take a look at your own interview process, it's really important to make sure that you can try to put the person in the situation that they're going to be in. And I think that's what Rick Ova was doing, was putting you in a situation, doesn't matter what it was, he found different ways to try to put you in an uncomfortable situation and then see how you were going to handle it and whether you were going to, whether you were going to get through it. So you get you get into the program, you go through, and for those who don't know, SSBN is a, is a boomer. And so, George, why don't you talk to us about the the life of a boomer nuclear submarine officer? Sure, I, I will say that the life of a nuclear submarine officer on a boomer when I was there, a little bit different than on a Trident. The, the Tridents are the the newer ones. But the, the basic concept behind a missile, a ballistic missile submarine is deterrence. And we say the, the motto of the ballistic missile fleet is we hide with pride, mm-hmm. which is appropriate. We, you go out, you can go underwater for uh, 72 days and you hide. You're, you're sitting there not doing anything except listening to the, the radio to make sure you don't get an order to launch. And at the end of 72 days, you surface, come back home, and then turn over to the other crew and go back to wherever your home port is and take a little time off and then train for three months and then start the whole cycle over again. So to say it's exciting... If it is exciting, something's wrong. Something's gone wrong. <laughs> and there were times it was exciting, but again, it was something that's gone wrong. On all of your cruises that, that you did, was mm-hmm. there was there something that you ran out of one time that you can remember that <laughs> that you had to try to there make? Yeah, so what was that? Well, probably the one, the one that people will relate to more than anything is we were, this is when I was XO on Spadefish. And uh, I will say we were off doing something somewhere. And that, that's as much as I'll say about that. But we were there for a long time and we were running really, really low on food. We were down to where the only real only food we had was canned ham, and I, as I recall, we had a little ice cream mix. We were totally out of milk, powdered milk, of course, at that time. Most of the canned goods were gone, but every meal featured canned ham, and the bread was made with ice cream mix instead of milk, instead of powdered milk, which actually makes pretty good bread. It was really sweet. That's funny. But, can, can you eat canned ham now? I still eat canned ham, but rather reluctantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for me, it was lima beans. We got extended, 
And one of the only things we had left was lima beans, and it was lima bean pancakes, lima bean salad, lima bean steak, you know, somehow put together. How was it being underwater for 72 days straight? To me, it's normal. Maybe I'm not. But you were there with a crew of, I think we had about 150 people on board. The boat is 300 and, well, John adds about 300 and, 345 feet long, 32 foot in diameter. So you can figure out the volume. I mean, you figured out the density of steel. So you got to be able to figure out the volume of that. <laughs> but you, you develop very close relationships with the crew that you have to. If you get angry with somebody, somebody really torts you off, there's no place you can go that he's not going to be. I mean, it's, it's hard to go, just stay away from people. And you are, you know, outside of that steel hull, there's a very unforgiving ocean. And you're down deep in it. So you have to depend on everybody on board. Any one of those could be the person who saves your life. Or the person who doesn't. So you spend a, a lot of time personally qualifying so that you're qualified to operate the boat. And you're depending on everybody else on board who is qualified to operate the boat. So it's very close relationships. I still, 50 years later, meet with friends from the John Adams. I was at a reunion of the John Adams a couple of weeks ago down in Florida. And to some extent, it's just like, the conversation is still the same. I, I have those same relationships. Yeah. Certainly. The, yeah. There, there was a tremendous bond mm-hmm. that was built under that pressure. And um, yeah, they are, it's like we, we never left each other. And I think, yeah. I think you really said it like outside of that hull, it's unforgiving. And the water is every second is trying to get into that hull. And we all right. have to, we all have to count on each other. In in your entire submarine experience, what do you think were the keys that allowed us to be successful? Well, we certainly discussed some of them already, and the, the training and the qualification, the selection process, the quality. But from my viewpoint, from you know being a Everywhere from being a young officer to commanding one of the boats, it was the teamwork. It was the team. Certainly the technology was exquisite. You don't find anything anywhere more complex than a nuclear submarine. But the people who are your shipmates are the real key to success for for the boats. Because we can have the best technology today that we want to have. The success is, is through the people. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Talk to us about some of the initial work that you did as it relates to adding uh, another function to nuclear submarines. And that is in working with SEAL teams oh, okay. to be able to deliver them close in. SEAL Team 3 in yeah. San Diego. And, you know, I'll, I'll preface the discussion with, you know, lockout, lock, lock-in, lockouts have been done with other classes of submarines. 
and the 637s like you were on with Pogi and the earlier boats could do that. The 688s, the Los Angeles class, and they were designed, they were designed to do that. Their basic premise for being was to go out with the carrier battle force and go fast. They were strictly designed to go fast. When it comes time to do a lock-in, lock-out procedure, that's not what you're doing. And in fact, you're trimming the boat so that you're at 80-foot keel depth, plus or minus a foot, and you can zero speed on the boat, so you're not going through the water at all, and you can go up and down, uh, I want to say about a foot per minute, but you're only allowed to do that for a foot or so. So basically, you're hanging there. The, the 688s were not designed to do that. No hovering system. The instrumentation was fruited best to be able to measure the uh, the velocities you need to measure. And it was things as simple as the hatch, uh, the escape hatch, opens in the wrong direction. It opens so that the flow of the water would tend to push it back down. Yeah. And one of the first things we had to do was determine when, at what speed that hatch would start closing again so that uh, a seal wouldn't get trapped in the hatch. That hatch weighs better than a ton. It would hurt if you were trapped. And it turned out it doesn't go, start going shut to about five knots. But nobody knew that until we tested it. But there were any number of things that we had to develop as a procedure to be able to maintain that boat dead still for the period of time it took to lock in, lock out a team of SEALs. What did you like about working with the, with the SEAL teams? They were, one, they were a lot of fun to work with. They were a lot of fun to play with, too. We did uh, a lot of triathlons together. But they were professional. They were probably the uh, epitome of professionalism. Uh, if they were presented with a problem or an operation that, that they needed to do, they would sit down and plan it out and practice it in just exquisite detail. So they had everything down to the second. And they never said quit. If you, if you work with a steel, they would work what's done. They would not say quit. I loved my experience. It was after you probably developed a lot of the procedures that, that we were using when we were working with the SEAL team. And I have to tell you, mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun working with them. I think they're crazy. Yeah. You know, some of the stuff that they do, I just sort of go like, I don't know if I could do that. So you, you get out and take us through your, your next journey and your next steps. Well, I retired in 95 and we were living in San Diego and a friend of mine who's a PhD in with a degree in physics, engineering physics, uh, was working for a small research firm up in La Jolla. They were doing very high end algorithms for the submarine force, but mostly with, uh, related to sonar. I would frequently go up to the, their labs, walk me through what they were doing as sort of a 
take take the bus driver up and see if this is useful or not. But if, as you recall, the environment in '95, we were enjoying the peace dividend and things were downsizing. We were losing a lot of boats. He was losing business because, you know, they, we weren't investing in that stuff anymore. So he read the writing on the wall, and he had met a gentleman who lived in Durango, Colorado. His name was Bill Lupian, and he was in the stock market. He, in fact, had been uh, the inventor of a system called a company called Instanet. Instanet's still around, but it was the very first electronic trading system for stocks. When we met Bill, it had just been bought by Reuters, so. He was looking for what he wanted to do next. He had a ranch in Durango. So Terry and I uh, and our families caravaned across Arizona and Colorado to Durango and went to work with Bill. We were building a system that was going to compete with the New York Stock Exchange and a totally electronic. We built it from where we had, as I recall, we had five employees when we started, maybe six. We built that in about five years to a four million four billion dollar market cap and about four hundred employees. But then as you re- remember, I said that we were competing with New York Stock Exchange. Just and a small just a small just a small entity, right? A little bitty company like that. Yeah. And they don't necessarily play fair. Oh wow. Yeah. So that that was a fun ride, but it didn't make it. It was an exciting ride. It was one of those cases where when you're starting out, everybody's got to be able to do a lot of different jobs. How do you think your time in the submarine force prepared you to you know, go from zero to 400 employees and create a $4 billion market cap company that unfortunately, like you said, you didn't, know, make it. didn't make it? I will say... Uh, Teamwork and leadership were probably the, particularly the teamwork aspect were uh, the strongest. Building the, you know that team up and management, particularly you know small team management uh, and the submarine management structure are the same. I mean, when you're on a boat, there's a lot of I won't say little programs, but tasks that need to be done. When you're building a a, a company. A small company, there are a whole lot of tasks that need to be done. On a boat, you know, you've only got X number of people and you may not have the expert available. Uh, a good example is firefighting. If you're on a surface ship, you know, a carrier has what in essence is a fire department. So if they have a fire on board, people essentially stand back and let the fire department put it out. It's not that way on the boat. When the fire starts, you're going to put it out or you're going to die. First person. So, uh, yeah, first person had to react, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And to, you know, it may not be you're going to die with a small company, but if you don't take the action, you, you, you don't make things happen, your company's going to die. So, you know, th- th- those kinds of things played very well together. Technologies ended up being very similar too. Well, it doesn't sound like it would be. Well, yeah, the ability to learn technology very quickly, 
I think one of the yeah. other things that <clears throat> that I picked up was the ability to be able to make decisions on the fly, <laughs> under stress, in ambiguity, yeah. and then know that the decision that you made eight minutes earlier, you wouldn't make that same decision now based upon how the situation has changed. So I I bet you tapped into that a lot. A whole lot. And yeah, it's interesting you would say that. Was talking with Bill, and he said exactly that. One of the reasons he hired me was the ability, my ability to make decisions based on very limited input, to which I recounted, yeah, I can make decisions based on no input whatsoever. <laughs> but yeah, he's, that's exactly right. You, you've got, when you're, when you're doing a torpedo approach, you don't have all of the information. You don't know what the other guy's going to do. You don't know when you're in the optimal position to shoot. But it's time to make that decision. You've got to make it. So. Yeah, and then course correct to success. Exactly. Yeah. So you have that experience. You go through six or seven more startups. And, yeah. Yep. And then I think you said, hey, I'm I'm done with this. I'd like to shift our conversation sure. over to what you're probably most well-known for, and that's the in, entire submarine series. So I want you to take us through, what was the genesis of you saying, hey, I think I want to do this? Okay, well, let's go back to Durango. If you haven't been to Durango, it's little town in southwest Colorado, and it's about as far away from the ocean as you can physically get. But the people there didn't know anything about submarines. The one lady that I worked with actually thought the submarine force was part of the Coast Guard. And it's, I had to explain to her that we operated in far deeper water than the Coast Guard did. But they were fascinated with the stories. And any sailor worth of salt, tell sea stories. I mean, it's, it's just, that's part of the requirement. I mean, it's just, if you look on the back of your DD-214, it says you have to tell sea stories. <laughs> I'll go look at it when I get back home. Take a look. <laughs> and several people said, hey, George, you need to, to write these down. Well, so I kind of took that to heart. And said, okay, yeah, maybe I should. But then I started looking at it and said, okay, now, we, we have two dynamics here. One was a lot of what I did was classified. And I really don't want to go to prison for telling everybody all this classified information. So let's make it fiction. And then the other part is, frankly, what we did, what you and I both did, 99.99% uh, of the time was just boring. You're sitting there with nothing going on. But that 0.01% of the time, it's flat terror. I mean, it's, yeah, it's exciting. It's terror. You're scared. But when you're writing fiction, you know, you can't have, you can't portray all that boredom. So I ended up trying to portray what we did and what the submarines are capable of in, a, in an action environment i'm so, sort of thinking uh, of what that book would look like if we if you actually did, displayed what we did 
it would be, there'd be a hundred pages where there'd be nothing written on it. And then there yeah. would be one page that would be way outside of the book. <laughs> and it would just be like, yeah. like you said, complete terror that you would look at and mm -hmm. go, turn the page, nothing happened. Turn the page on. And then you get to this one, you go like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Yeah. So great. So everyone's all enamored by the stories. And, and you're like, hey, if I tell the real story, you know, National Security Agency is going to be my front door. So you took the step of saying, hey, I'm going to write it as fiction. You take a look at the first book was Final Bearing. So you're starting off to, to write it. What's your approach? Step back just a little bit. Yeah, Final Bearing was the first book published. The first book I wrote was published you know, several years later, and that was uh, Operation Golden Dawn. And just like anything, there's a learning process. So I wrote what I thought was a very good novel and went off in search of a agent. So at that point, this was, we're, we're talking right now in the late 90s, so the whole ebook and you know, self-publishing world really hadn't taken off yet. So after getting many, many rejections and any author going down the traditional path that doesn't have a stack of rejection letters about gay thick has not done his job. And I have a stack of those. I think you did a really great job of not only taking me there, because there's some stuff that I forgot that you wrote in there. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't so. I, yeah. I had to go research again. but. Yeah. Right. And it's funny when you, when you meet with people, they, they say something you're like, oh my gosh, I, yeah, I remember this. Mm -hmm. But I think what you well, did. One of the keys, I think with, we, we had to work at and work at hard was submarining is very technical. A non-submariner doesn't have that technical background. So you've got to, there, there's a balance. You've got to be able to explain to them enough of the technology so that they understand what's going on, but not so much that you overwhelm them. And you've got to simplify it a lot. If you're, if you're looking for a, a key to the story or a key to the technique, uh, I think that's one of the, the, the greatest there because I can write a great submarine story that submariners will enjoy, but there aren't that many submariners. It's not going to be a national bestseller if only submariners enjoy it. Right. The ability to be a great leader today, it rests in people's ability to tell simple stories that people can connect to. How many books are in the series? We're writing number 10 right now. You're writing number 10. Are you using that same process as you go through? Yeah, pretty much the same process. Yeah. How different is the outcome versus what you sort of start with as a storyline as you go through this and you go through chapter one and then you kick it back and forth and then you go through chapter two and kick it back and forth. Well, we end up, I'm going to say more or less where we thought we were going to end up. The path we take typically is not the path we, we laid out when we started. It's some variation. And, you know, sometimes it's, Something uh, we've seen or heard, we want to 
put into the story or would affect the story. Sometimes it's just a matter of, okay, we didn't see this potential when we were writing the outline, but now that we're writing the story, yeah, we need to put this in. So final bearing comes out. Did you think it was going to have the impact that it had? Do you think it was going to see the success that that it's seen? Of course, you know we, we thought our you know our baby was the finest book ever written. That's given, right? Uh, to some extent, yeah, I was happy with it, and yeah, I, I was happy with the story. Whether or not it made commercial success. To some degree, was beside the point. It, it, it was accomplishing what I wanted to do. A commercial success. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm very much in favor of that. And you know, it, it's it, it still does well. It, uh, it it still sells well now. And that, this is it's published uh, copyright 2003, so it's 20 years later. So yeah, and what resonated resonates with the reader. Interestingly, yeah, the submarine does, but the, the characters more than anything. And probably, you know, I've learned a lot from Don about character development, how to write characters, how to develop good characters. But that's, that's what came out of that. And those characters, some of those characters are still in our books today. Now they've obviously aged 20 years and, you know, they, one of the seamen recruits on, Spadefish and, and Final Bearing, I just wrote him in as the chief of the boat in, where is he? Oh, he's in Snapshot, the chief of the boat. So he's gone from uh, a seaman to chief of the boat over that 20-year period. So that, are, and that gives some continuity in between that the reader can, you know, associate yeah. with. Mm-hmm. I, I think that mm-hmm. is, and and then also learning about, you know, when that person started off as a seaman, they the person who continued to read the series probably didn't even know there was a thing called the chief of the boat. But knowing that that's what the the person can rise to in a career, I think it's it's part of the storytelling uh, that you have that's really bringing out the richness of the experience that we had in the submarine force. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a two-edged sword on that one. You know, you, you mentioned uh, Hunt for Red October and, and Clancy. And he got to the point where his people had to be king of the world. I mean, Jack Ryan ended up being president. You got to be very careful. It's, did you advance them or you're going to advance them so far they fall out of the plot? Right. <laughs> right. What's the next thing? King of Mars or something? Something like that. <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah. I do want to talk to you and get your feedback on... The main character, Joe Glass. What type of person is he? Share that with us. Well, interestingly, let's just start with Joe Glass wasn't the central character until Hollywood got a hold of him. Oh, he okay. was the ex- Joe Glass was the XO on Spadefish, and so he was. Yeah, he was a main character. But he wasn't. He wasn't John Ward. He wasn't the CO. Or he wasn't Bill Meebin, he wasn't the, the SEAL commander. Then when we got to Firing Point, which is what the movie Hunter Killer was based on, John Ward had gone off to be a Commodore. And there was time he 
And we were talking progressions a few minutes ago. It was time for him to progress in his career to the next step. He went up to the Commodore of the squadron. Joe Glass gets his own boat. He gets to Toledo. And they go off on a mission. And if you read Hunter Killer, you'll see that, you know, Glass is the skipper of the boat. And so he's a major character. But John Ward as the Commodore is off going stuff. And he's a major character. He's controlling the whole operation. And Bill Beeman is the chief seal. He's another major character. Well, there's a whole long story about how we got the, you know, the screenplay to Hollywood and all of that. But when, I think it really is when Gerard Butler read the screenplay is when Joe Glass became the, the key figure, the central figure. <laughs> and if you read Final Bearing, Joe Glass is sort of a short, somewhat overweight, I won't say nerd, but almost a nerdy kind of guy. And if you look at Gerard Butler, he's not any of that. So he got recast a little bit there. So a little dichotomy. Share the story of you finish the screenplay, but then filming doesn't start for for years. (laughs) 11 years to be exact. Well, we wrote this. Actually, Ernie Schmidt was a friend of mine in Hollywood. And I worked together on the screenplay, and then he went and marketed it. This is back in the 2007 time frame, I think. Firing Point, which later became Hunter Killer, was not published yet. It was still a manuscript. And then Relativity Media, Arnie shopped it around Hollywood to all the majors and most of the, what they call the Minimaxes, which are the, the tier of, of Houses right below the, the majors, you know, the majors of the, you know, the Sony's, the Sony's and the Paramount's of the world. And relatively media picked it up. That was 2007. Then it's a matter of when they, they decide they're going to go into production, getting a director and a lead actor. And each director has this little stable of lead actors, action actors they'll work with. Each act, lead actor has this little stable of directors that he'll work with. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was a matter of marrying them up. And, and during that period from about 2008 or nine to about 2013, I, we went, you know, Hunter Keller was associated with every major director, every major actor, every major action actor in Hollywood. So at one point, Liam Neeson was going to play Glass. And wow. At one point, Wahlberg on the play glass, just every action figure there was there. Then in about 2013, Troy Butler came on the scene and he lashed onto it and stuck with it. Was it but where was it filmed? Most of it's filmed. The interior stuff was all done in London, at Ely Studio in London. And then most of the FC stuff, well, some of the FC stuff was done in, in off Pearl Harbor. But a lot of it was done in the Black Sea and off of Bulgaria. Wow. A lot of the Russian stuff was off of Bulgaria. Wow. Was there a studio already set up or did they set up the entire studio in London? Well, the studio was there, but they had to set up an entire studio, if you will. When you go to a film studio, the studio room is nothing but a huge empty room. Right. And, you know, all painted black and really dark. But they had built, well, let's back up a little bit. 
the movie got really, really good Navy support. The, well, John Richardson, who was the CNO, but when the movie started, when he started first filming, he was in Rickover's old job, uh, NAFC 08. There's a whole story about it, but in, in the, the eventuality was they came to him and he said, Hey, yeah, we want to support this, but Toledo had been a, uh, in first 688. He said, well, why don't we just use it for Virginia? One of the newest ones. We want to show what Virginians can do, mm. which that's how, if you watch the movie, it becomes the Arkansas. So Butler and Donovan Marsh, the director, went out and rode Houston for my old boat for uh, a couple of weeks, a week, I guess it was. Oh, wow. Just so that Butler understood what it was like to be on a submarine and just the, he spent a lot of time studying the skipper. So the movie yeah. comes out. What was the feedback when the movie came out? Uh, some of it was very good, and it remains still very good. Some of it was, that's another submarine flick, or you know, some of it was, it's hokey. But by and large, pretty good. To the point where this summer, it was the Netflix number one flick of all the movies, of all the you know, in five, 2023? Yeah, 23. Five oh, years wow. after release. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's had some legs. One of the questions that I always ask is, for someone who's listening to this right now, what's one thing that a person could do to surface the leader inside of themselves? Takes a little thought. Probably two things. One is to surface the follower, if you will, inside yourself. And you're, you, where, did, where did that come from? It takes a good follower to be a good leader. You got to figure out how to do that first. And then get yourself into a leadership position. However, small a leadership position that is, where you're being a leader, where you're, you figure out how to head a team, influence a team, and that may only be a couple of people. Usually is for your first leadership position. That's great. I, I would love to ask another question on follower. That's a very interesting, not a concept. It, it is actually the key to how we were able to be successful in the submarine force, was Absolutely. to be put in positions of follower and then transition to leader. What are the key uh -huh. what are the key skills or tools that you need to learn how to be a great follower? Probably the key skills that to my line of thinking anyway is you know these two extremities here <laughs> use them. Listen, learn. Probably the best thing to do is find somebody who is a good mentor. And then listen to what he has to say, he or she, and internalize what they're saying. Probably the next level down, not as effective, but still reasonably effective, is just watch your leaders. They may be good leaders. They may not be good leaders. But internalize what they're telling you, what they're doing, what they're showing you. Probably more what they're showing you, which is you know what they're doing than what they're telling you. 
and then evaluate that way. Is that a good model? Is a so-so model? Or is that a, I don't want to, this is a lesson learned not to do model. And then work from there. I think that's great. And for those of you who, this is just audio, uh, George okay. was uh, pointing to his ears. And, okay. and you know, the, the famous saying we say is, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth, use appropriately. George, I want to thank you so much for being on the Servicing Leaders podcast. Your distinguished naval career was followed by a distinguished civilian career. And it's a lot of the things that you learned in the submarine force that you then brought forward. Your ability to see opportunity, to seek expertise in others, to collaborate at speed, and to tell compelling, simple stories. Those are all the things that I learned today from you. So again, thank you so much for serving our country, and thank you for moments for spending time. Thank you. I truly enjoyed it. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.